in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Brian Fry. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Nathan Lutz. How are you doing, Nathan? I'm doing great. I am currently out in the Philadelphia area this week for a brass concert that I'm going to be playing this weekend. We're, we're still doing outdoor concerts in the main and rehearsing outdoors and all that sort of thing, but while the weather's warm, we can get people together, we can do music in person, it's great. So off mic, we were talking about some uh, trying people around the world. Are, are you being tried by the uh, Philadelphians? Honestly, the main bit of shock for me is the different level of, let's say, confrontationalness of the musicians here, where, uh, you know, people in Pittsburgh are very laid back. We have a slower approach to the world by comparison. You get to Philadelphia and they're like, that 150 beat per minute tempo that you maybe slightly undercut there, we want it to be like 160 at least. Yeah, but I've basically been in nearly more fights on Carson Street than anywhere else in the continental U.S. So I, 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 haven't, I haven't fully digested the chill nature of Pittsburgh yet. Uh, also joining us today from the Flick Chicks podcast, we have Jane Moore. Jane, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm kicking it here in Joplin, Missouri. So um, you could say I'm having a good time, I guess. Excellent. And uh, where where have you met the most trying people? Ooh, the most trying people. Um, probably Joplin, Missouri. Um, Joplin, Missouri. <laughs> they oh, don't right. wear masks That's... and they refuse to and they get angry when you ask them to. That's a deep cut. Yeah. Sorry, right. guys. Joplin, Missouri. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Jane, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Flick Chicks podcast? Yeah. Um, it's super fun. I co-host it with my best friend from undergrad, Allison Dodge. Uh, she has a degree in theater and I have a degree in psych. So um, I think put that together and you get movies. <laughs> um, we're two very opinionated young women uh, that talk about any movie ever. We have no boundaries. So new old anything. Um, we've even done a movie that doesn't have a Wikipedia article. I'm surprised it took us so long to get to one, though. It's Adventures in the Sin Bin, starring Bo Burnham whenever he was 20. When was that made? It was made in 2010, so he would have been 20 years old. Wow. Yeah, so really young. It's surprisingly non-problematic. We really thought it was going to be, but it was not. It was kind of sweet. Um, we really love to roast Wikipedia articles because sometimes they're pretty ridiculous, and sometimes they're kind of sweet, like really tenderly written, which is kind of nice to read about. Um and every episode has to be marked as explicit because we curse like sailors. So, you know, if you're into opinionated women who curse and talk about movies, there you go. <laughs> I will be fully honest on this. It is the one thing that, that Russell has drawn a hard line on, and it is the one <laughs> thing that I struggle with the most. For sure. I've been um, listening to your ones, and I was like, okay, Jane, you can't, you can't curse. I, uh, I cuss like a sailor. It is... 
uh, it is, it's vocabulary for me. Uh, I yeah. do have a pretty good switch. I've got a one year old, so I've got to, but I, I've got a pretty good switch. I never cur- cursed around my uh, younger brother either, mm-hmm. but man, it's just, when you get fired up about something, you know, yeah. I tend to let, I, I tend to let fly. You know, one of these days we need to somehow figure out how to prank wrestle by teaching his son how to curse and just to <laughs> run in. And bomb podcasts with in the middle of things. That would be fantastic. Just, just a straight out of uh, uh, Meet the Fockers, and he, you know, just kid runs in and. You know. <laughs> where did you learn that? It, it's actually one of my favorite parts of Avengers Endgame, where the daughter says, "He's like, no, that's mommy's word. She invented it, and only she uses it." Yes, that's a good one. Yeah. So I, I definitely plan on using that uh, at some point. Um, so, uh, today we're talking about, uh, Psycho. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask, uh, we'll start with Nathan. What is your favorite movie scream? As in, I actually yelled at the screen. I'm going to have to jump over to a TV show here because I feel like I don't usually (laughs) get that reaction in a movie theater. I'm one of these people who, when he's around people in, in a movie theater, I don't get too vocal about things, but you know, if I'm completely alone, if I'm completely in a dark room watching, for example, the Netflix horror show Haunting of Hill House, there were a couple Ooh, of moments yeah. in that show, especially the car scene, the car scene where she <laughs> jumps out from between the sisters. That was a masterpiece of a jump scare. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Jane, what do you got? Um, so one, I haven't seen it in theaters because it was made in the 80s. But uh, every time I see it, I definitely uh, get a vocal response. And it's more well, not really a scream, but more of a like, ah! Uh, and it's Sleepaway Camp, which is the room of horror movies. It's a terrible movie. It's horrible. I love it. Excellent. Yeah. Best kind. Yeah. Or um, the scene in Hereditary where Tony Collette's like floating up in the corner in the theaters. So I was like, oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, mine would be, so, so mine was actually a laugh in a scary movie. And, uh, I I love telling this story because it was, it was, I basically had a room full of people turn around and look at me like I was a psychopath. Um, it was during the first final destination movie. Oh no. And, and, uh, it's, it's where the, the, girlfriend is going off on her boyfriend she's like if you want to just stick around this town and beat up so and so your whole life then you can just drop dead and a bus hits her like right as she says drop dead i laughed so hard out loud like a cackle like it was so funny to me like it was supposed to be startling and i (laughs) to this day i still i still find it funny and i mean even the people i were i was with did a slow head turn at me like, dude, are you all right? And I'm like, but that was... Uh, it was uh it was just it was great. That was I it's it's still to this day one of my favorite horror movies because it it drug that out of me. Like it was I had no choice but to laugh at that. There was no like it's not like a sneeze you're holding back. It was like that had to happen. Yeah. And the reaction, too, is just great. Um, all right. So, uh, Nathan, I'm curious, what is the first movie you owned? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clarify. I feel like you get a lot of movies when you're a kid. But what's the first movie you purchased? The first movie I personally purchased, 
I think was The Incredibles, which okay. was a, a, a movie I was a big fan of when I was, when I was a kid. Uh, Jane, what do you got? Uh, I think the first movie I bought was the film Secret Window, starring Johnny Depp. He was like my childhood crush, so, uh, you know, had a lot of fond feelings, and I um, bought that for myself because it was based on a Stephen King novella, and it's, it's interesting. That was the, all right, so Johnny Depp, I, I actually have read the story. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was in one of his short story collections. Like I think different seasons. Half Past Midnight? Four Half Past, past midnight. midnight, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Uh, yeah, so yes, I've read that book, but I, I don't know if I've, I vaguely remember the movie. I probably did see it, and I believe the ending of it was grossly different than the ending of the book. Really? I, 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 I feel like I had an issue with it. Um, however, also in that, uh, in that book was the, uh, the uh, story, The Langoliers, which was also a movie that I believe was a television, like straight to TV movie. And it was horribly awesome. Um, just, just dreadfully great. So, um, my first purchased movie, I, I can't swear to this, but I feel like it was a VHS of Polly Shore's biodome. Um, I, I have this vague recollection of being up at my grandparents' house and going to the local video rental store for all of you, uh, um, Post two thousand people, uh, that's where you went to rent your uh, yeah, that's where you went to rent your movies back then. Um, <laughs> but anyway, they had a sale on a bunch of their old used videos, and I think that was one of them. So I'll cop to it. I thought that movie was funny. Um, so today we are doing Psycho, released mm-hmm. in nineteen sixty, grossed thirty two million dollars, which I just feel like that's big big kudos for that. It ranked number two in the box office. It, the only thing that placed ahead of it was Swiss Family Robinson. Uh, the one right behind it was Spartacus. So that's a good uh, company to be in. Swiss Family was number one that year. IMDb rating on this was eight point five. And uh, critics meter was 96 Rotten Tomatoes, audience 95. So everybody's loving themselves some psycho. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> how did we feel about it? Like er- early, not not star ranking, but uh, you know, tell me about your your first watch, Jane. So um, it's an interesting story. So my mom has really good movie taste. Um, but at one point, probably when I was like about nine, I was watching the film, the masterpiece, I should say, um, Looney Tunes Back in Action, starring Brendan Fraser. Um, incredible. There's a great uh, homage in that film where Bugs Bunny does the entire psycho shower scene, in, pretty much in its entirety. It's even that down to the, like the eye thing. It's hilarious. And I thought it was so funny, but my mom was like, do you understand the reference? And I was like, no. So she showed me Psycho. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. So it became um, probably my sick movie. Like whenever I was homesick, I would watch it. Um, my mom wasn't too big on the censorship. So I appreciate that. I got to see a lot of good movies really early. Now, I don't know if if you guys suffered from this. And, and tell me, you know, your, your sto- personal stories. I got hit heavily with censorship as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. I remember my folks taking the movie, the matrix away from me. Whoa. Uh, and this was as like a teenager. And I remember my dad, I think watched it months later 
and he walked in and he just handed it back to me and he goes, that was an awesome movie. And I was like, I know. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't know. I like, you know, you said your, your parents weren't big on it. Uh, Nathan, what did you get hit with? What were your restrictions? I grew up in sort of a funky way in which my two siblings are seven and eight years older than I am. So they my brother's 11 years older for than me. me and went ahead and ran interference. So that Matrix movie that you're talking about, that was definitely my first R-rated movie. And I don't, I don't know exactly when that was, but I was pretty young. And I, I, I distinctly remember realizing my brother was watching some cool movie down in the basement and just uh, cracking the door open and sneaking down and then exchanging a look of, yeah, okay, you can stay here. I won't say anything. And uh, it was great. <laughs> oh, I, I so so my brother's ten years younger than I am, so I was definitely the guy breaking through walls. I do remember one time where he called me up. I had left all of my VHS collection at home when I went to college, and I remember him calling me and being like, "Hey, have you watched Wild Things?" Oh my like, God, no! <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, Ben, you're watching my copy." <laughs> He's like. He's like, oh, right, right, right. And I was just like, you know, I like none of that would have fly, uh, flown when I was a kid. And I was like, I'm happy to do this for you. But like, you don't understand the strife that went on to get to where we are now. <laughs> I just I need that. I need that kudos for paving the way for you to watch wild things at, you know. That, yeah, well, but you know what? It, it definitely went both ways. My family is full of these stories of. My brother or my sister, especially my brother, using, oh, but I want to babysit Nathan for a little while as an excuse to stay up later, do more things at night, all that sort of thing. So, you know, there was a give and take here. Sure. Yeah, my parents, um, I could pretty much watch anything I wanted without supervision after 12, pretty much. Before that, I could watch anything I wanted with supervision. Um, But yeah, pretty much after that, I was South Park, you know, all the stuff. Yeah, I definitely stayed up uh, to watch South Park. Yes. I watched it on uh, three, level three volume. I was about <laughs> four four inches from the uh, CRT <laughs> TV screen. Uh, so my parents wouldn't wake up while I was watching it. And that was basically the first two to three seasons of South Park for me. Wow. When, when they originally aired, too, just to, you know, really further date myself. <laughs> You would not believe, so, uh, you know, growing up, I was a huge fan of the band called Orgy. You would not believe the explanation that it took to my parents to allow me to buy a CD by a band called Orgy. <laughs> like, Did you have to make a PowerPoint both, for it? <laughs> no, no both, both of my parents are lawyers. So, I mean, I was like in the middle of 12 angry men trying to convince <laughs> the last two guys to do not guilty. I mean, it was brutal. Um, <laughs> all right, swinging it back around. So we've got Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock directing, uh, Supporting actress was Janet Lee. Art direction, um, cinematography were both black and white. Just going to run down these real quick. Uh, AFI rankings, 100 greatest movies of all time. It's number 18. It went up to 14 when they revisited the list most recently. Number one on the greatest thrills movie. Uh, film scores, number four. Greatest her- heroes and villains, number two. Greatest quotes, number 56. 
Um, as far as greatest quotes, I, did you guys feel like you brought anything away from this on, on quotes, Nathan? Mainly that this is a really quotable movie in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. And a boy's best friend is his mother is, I feel like it's an excerpt from a conversation that should be quoted in its whole for how creepy it is and how just the atmosphere is dripping and every single line in that is the sirens are in the distance. The sirens are blaring a little nearer. Now they're flashing in your face. (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) Pump the brakes. This is one of those movies that I thought that um, if you watched it on mute with subtitles, it would be really amusing. Yeah, that's so true. Without the music, which Hitchcock didn't even really want to begin with. He really wanted more like sound effects rather than the music. But um, the studio was like, no, we have to do music. And I think they made the right call. Yeah. 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 I mean, iconic, iconic music. And um, to cover up a a faux pas before, Nathan, was this the first time you'd seen it? Or what was your history with this? This is the first time that I had seen this movie. Whoa. So... This was a this was a new experience for me, except for the fact that this is a movie that is so in the cultural zeitgeist that unfortunately some of these scenes, you know, the the big twist at the end of this movie was somewhat spoiled for me and I we're before the spoilers section here, so I won't say exactly what it was, but I will say that Russell and I, our other host, had a conversation about this beforehand and we both watched it with having had different parts of the movie spoiled for us, and it was very funny oh. to hear, oh, I knew this was going to happen, but I had no idea this was going to happen, and it was <laughs> the complete reverse. That's really fun. It is, and Russell's one of those people that I, he is the most vocal about having movies ruined for him. Like, he was <laughs> the guy in high school that was just like, no! <laughs> So it is amusing to me at times when when something gets blown out of the water for him just because he he, he takes it very, very seriously. Yeah, and this movie has like iconic twists, so it's really it's a shame that you didn't get to experience those to the maximum effect. Yeah, there there was one twist that I don't know if it would even be called a twist necessarily, except that because two characters look pretty similar, it was actually kind of shocking. This was, I'm going to call this a first time watch for me. I've actually seen this movie twice before. Uh, Both times I did not pay it proper attention. Uh, Once was at a party. And the other time I believe I was in and out during the, like I put it on as a, all right, I'm going to watch Psycho and then didn't really stay conscious the whole time. So I'm going to call this a first time watch for me. And what a great movie. Um, I had vague, vague, super vague reminiscence of what happened so i can't say it was completely spoiled but i kind of got the gist of what was where they were angling for uh whether it was due to someone ruining it for me in the past and just not really fully remembering it or what but uh still incredibly enjoyable film i mean i think you could go in knowing exactly what happens but not having seen it and still have a really really good time with this movie absolutely absolutely so anyway, it's going to, it's going to, I downloaded Peacock TV to watch this too, by the way. So here's a little plug for Peacock TV. <laughs> uh, <laughs> never heard of that before either. And I was like, all right, we'll give that a shot. <laughs> all right. So warning, spoilers lie ahead. We're going to be doing a very broad synopsis of Psycho. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, pause here, watch the movie.
Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. And we're back. So we are about to do a plot summary for the movie Psycho. So if you've not seen this movie, this is your very last chance. Uh, Don't let us be that guy or girl that ruins it for you. Nathan, you want to roll it down? I do, Brian. Marion Crane's jet-setting romance with her boyfriend Sam Loomis reaches a dead end when he reveals his debts. So when her employer sends her to the bank with $40,000 in cash, she makes a snap decision and instead drives night and day toward his home in California. Exhausted after a stressful encounter with a suspicious policeman, she finally stops to stay the night at a hotel, where only the lost visit, the Bates Motel. There, she meets the oh-so-friendly Norman Bates, who invites her for dinner over the objections of his mother, which Marion hears from the nearby Bates' house. But later that night, Norman's mother appears and stabs Marion to death in a grisly murder. She returns to the house, covered in blood, and Norman's voice rings out in surprise. He runs out and hides the body, the car, and the $40,000 in the bog. Sam, Marion's boss, and Marion's sister, Lila, have hired a private investigator to find her. The investigator goes door to door along her probable route and finally reach the hotel. Suspicious of Norman's mother, Detective Arbogast sneaks into the Bates' house and starts up the stairs, but Mother Bates, suddenly spry, emerges and stabs out viciously, knocking, ho- knocking him down to his death. After getting little help from the local sheriff, Sam and Lila go out to do their own investigating. Sam distracts Norman while Lila goes into the house. Mother Bates isn't in the bed, but she is in the basement. At least, her corpse is. Norman springs onto the scene, dressed as his mother, knife in hand, but Sam overcomes him. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Oh my gosh. This movie was so much... I love a movie that can go as far back as this one does and still have that, like, surprising nature to it oh yeah we're really in an age where i feel like it's hard to to shock people and ah this movie is just it's very timeless in that uh in that respect yeah and it really inspired so many modern fears that we have like the whole dying in the shower thing wasn't really a fear before this but i mean um vivian lee said that she uh didn't never took another shower again she only took baths after this film I feel like it would be harder to escape a bath. I know, me too. I feel like you're standing up in a shower, <laughs> so like you already have that advantage. I don't know, but uh, like yeah, I that can see you fear. never using a shower curtain again. Yeah, I think that that might be the. But yeah, so this this uh, movie is based off a novel by Robert Block, um, which is based on the crimes of Ed Gein, who I know a lot about because, uh, unsurprisingly, I like true crime. <laughs> But I really like how um, they really injected Ed Gein's spirit into Norman Bates 
especially with the mother thing, like the whole line of boy's best friend and is, is his mother could have come straight from Edgine's head. Like his mother once said to him, you dreadful child, only a mother could love you. You know, it really rings true. You really worry about the writers of this kind of movie when they hit something so squarely on the head with these conversations, and it just feels exactly like something that would actually be happening, as opposed to something... Yes. I mean, I can think of so many... Back to the sort of shower conversation. How many horror trailers have you watched, not to, not to mention movies, that advertise as one of the biggest things oh there's a creepy shower scene of course it's that but Mm -hmm. i think a lot of what makes this movie amazing isn't the the shocking over the top stuff like that but the texture the Mm -hmm. a woman is driving in the rain with thoughts of how tangled her life is after a decision that she's Mm -hmm. been forced into has been made and she can't take it back she hears the voices of people shouting and it's literally just a shot over the dash of a car in the rain of someone's face just staring out into the distance. And yet it's the most riveting thing I can remember in many movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying. And the music overlay over just really, I think, hits at home the entire thing, especially in the driving scenes. That music really is just timeless. Yeah, this is a movie that Alfred Hitchcock did not initially want music for. And you can almost say that they went in a cheap route because it's just a string orchestra score. It's just violins, yeah. It's just it's just orchestra and yet the composer Bernard Herrmann manages to pull something out of that that is iconic to this day. The shrieking strings, the incredible cello hits, how many film scores use that as it's almost like a modern thing that's having a renaissance now of having those all string scores getting those hits down there. Excellent job Bernard Herrmann. Yeah I mean the exorcist just straight up plucked this this soundtrack i'm convinced the entire walking scene in the exorcist i'm like this is just the driving music from psycho yeah so uh to uh just just as a a good place to plug in south park again uh, jane, <laughs> it's always a good jane mentioned that she she's a big fan of true crime uh, nathan where do you fall on informative murder porn <laughs> i generally don't like it i honestly am not a fan of it because either it's really depressing because it's just oh my gosh people are doing something stupid and people are horrible but in this case there's so, there's so much style and so much it's it's over the top enough that that kind of reaction doesn't jump out at me and i love i love this i feel like i could play the game but it's just not one of my favorites and what i mean by that is i like i don't go and seek out true crime stuff all that often but every once in a while something does suck me in like mind hunters on netflix was excellent i recently read a couple uh, one's actually a world history book but it's still basically true crime is called say nothing about the ira and uh the other one was killers of the flower moon about the first uh so I have I have an interesting story about Killers of the Flower Moon. So I'm from Ramona, Oklahoma, originally, which is about um, 10 minute drive away from where those murders happened. And the murderers, Ernest Burkhart, is my great great uncle. Wow. So uh, his his sister his sister is my great grandmother, um, and I'm going to see the movie set uh, this t- no tomorrow I think. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm going to see the movie set and check everything out. So I'm really excited. Uh, but yeah, that is crazy. Yeah, it's like, wild. Wow, a connection. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And Leonardo DiCaprio is playing my great great uncle. Like that's his role. Just so you guys know, listeners, 
that was not set up ahead of time. No, that not was, at all. That was, that, that was literally, that was not scripted. That was me like, oh, I brought this. Oh, all right. <laughs> so do you get to meet DiCaprio or is it going to uh, be like a meet and greet? You no, I don't think so. Hand? I think I'm just going to go there and check it out. Um, okay. But I mean, if I spot him, I'll definitely let him know. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Excellent. Um, wow. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's uh, let's talk about uh, or a little bit about the plot of this movie. So we've got uh, embezzlement uh, leading to murder, and then murder, and then additional murder. So uh, it seems to be one of those you get what's coming to you uh, sort of movies. Do you do you watch this as a uh, warning? piece on uh stealing from your boss nathan i don't know i think it's more a warning piece on don't drive too late at night i mean on my drive back into the philadelphia area that i just took i spent i i started fairly late in the day and was definitely getting a little bit tired towards the end but uh this is definitely the kind of movie that that keeps you on your toes when you're driving just uh oh oh no let's not stop here yeah, I actually think this movie was um, anti-motel propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that leads me to my next question. Have either of you ever stayed at a psycho motel? Jane. A psycho motel? I've stayed, certainly stayed at a motel. Um, I haven't really had... But I mean, one where you're like, one where you're like, okay, I'm, you know, 30% chance of being murdered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I would say so. And I'm trying to remember where. I think it was in, um, oh, I think it was in Eureka Springs. Little bit murdery, but that's okay. It was really cheap. Yeah, I've absolutely stayed in a motel that was sort of where my middle school science Olympiad team would stay for the state competition out in Juniata area. That uh, if not for the fact that the rest of the team was there, oh my gosh, old wood panel walls, the decor that hasn't been updated <laughs> since like maybe the 70s. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of place that you just kind of, you just kind of wonder, who are these people who run this place? Yeah. Where are you? Where, where is Eureka Springs? That's in Arkansas. Oh, that's a good, that's a good place for murder. I, yeah, I like yeah, I would think so. They that's had the appropriate a, place for a motel. A lot of taxidermy. Lot, lot of taxidermy. That was really what set. I was like, uh, yeah. I, I do feel like after this movie came out, like they should have nixed taxidermy and motels. Like, I think that's just. I think that I was, like that's, that's the line in the like, sand. Uh, <laughs> like, Perhaps we should rethink our decorating. <laughs> you know, this guy who owns this motel goes out and sees this movie and it's like, oh man, I got to take it all down now. <laughs> you know, that's the one thing. So in reference to what I said earlier about having been spoiled, I knew that Norman's mother was dead and that he'd been playing her from the beginning. Yeah. I knew that from basically some movie show showing that as a great moment in cinema and like of the spinning the chair around. So it was kind of fuzzy yeah. in my head. So my assumption was that the reason that he got into taxidermy was so that he could be a like good taxidermist of his mother. But man, he's really good with the birds, but not so good with the people. Yeah, he didn't really do anything to her, I don't think. Um, 
That's a good thought, though. Um, I mean, I've seen Bates Motel, which isn't that great, and it's obviously like the prequel or whatever. It's not great. Um, and he just gets into it because he likes taxidermy and that. But, I mean, that's an interesting thought. Uh, I think he just is lonely. Make your own friends. Yeah, and I mean, also, it's obviously playing on Ed Gein's whole thing where he actually, you know, skin people and stuff. Uh, so I think it's kind of also a play on that a little bit of him kind of playing God a little bit. Yeah, it is absolutely one of those activities that if you're doing that, you are walking a line in which many people are going to look askance at you. Yeah, and I have a, bo- I have a taxidermy bobcat in um, my living room because my parents gave it to me as a gift when I was a kid. Um, and it's like baring its teeth. It's pretty freaky. <laughs> I, I always wanted Rowdy from Scrubs. <laughs> like just to mess with people like i just wanted a you know taxidermy dog that you just put out in front of doors to startle people like, <laughs> that was one of my favorite recurring gags in scrubs and then you're in the room with horror movie fans and they say hey what about that scene from cabin in the woods oh my gosh I, stop <laughs> i i also love 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 that movie dearly it's one of my favorite it's it's probably in my top five for sure it's a perfect movie, in my opinion. I think that is my favorite horror movie. Oh, it's it's genius. Um, I love it so much. They actually put, like, uh, sugar on the wolf's teeth so she could make <laughs> out with it cause she, without throwing up. Um, Alice and I did an episode on that a little bit ago. And, yeah, there's some interesting facts. Another interesting fact about that movie is that Marty, the reason he's always wearing baggy clothes is because he was more ripped than uh, Chris Hemsworth at the time. Ooh, can't be that. Exactly. Chris Hemsworth's the jock. You can't be more buff than him. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, how do we feel about the cast and the acting in this movie? Nathan. This leads me to my second thing that was the part that surprised me in this movie, uh, where Russell, obviously, I knew that the shower scene existed and happened, but I wasn't entirely sure that this person died. Because Marion and Lila, the actors who play them, look like sisters, look really, look really close. So yeah. since this is the first time I'd actually watched this movie, in my head I was thinking, huh, so this person obviously survives to the end of the movie and is able to turn around the mother in the chair. So then she's getting stabbed a bunch of times and I'm thinking, <laughs> wow, this is a really robotic, weird stabbing motion. Does she like run away and have a bunch of stab wounds? But how is she able to just like stand up and do this? This is really unrealistic. And then she falls over and dies and I'm thinking, wait, huh? Does her <laughs> ghost come up and turn the mother around in the chair? Oh, there's a sister. So, oh. <laughs> but in, uh. in all seriousness... Uh, As I alluded to earlier, this is a movie that is not just the campy moments. It's not just the -the over-the-top stuff. There are so many scenes in this movie that are made amazing by just the widening of people's eyes and the stillness of their expressions while they're listening to somebody totally creep them out and various things. It's great. I think this movie really, the whole vibe, I think, really hinges on Anthony Perkins being as handsome as he is. Uh, I don't really, I don't really know if it would work as well of him being like the the boy next door, you know, like type of vibe if he wasn't so cute. Um, I have a little interesting fact about uh, the casting of Anthony Perkins. Um, I guess him and Hitchcock would make prank calls to like producers and stuff. And at one point, Perkins did a woman's voice, and Hitchcock was like, "That is the perfect voice." For oh Norma no! And and they put it in. Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. so funny. <laughs> um, I really like the woman who plays Marion Crane, Janet Lee. How um, 
she really plays this female character in like the 50s in a, in a way that she's kind of standoffish, which wasn't really the norm back then. She's kind of um, rigid even before she takes the money with the uh, billionaire or whatever. Uh, and Hitchcock was really good about that, really writing, uh, writing and giving meaty roles to women who um, weren't really getting those parts back then. This is a great role. Like, like I said, I was so surprised because she is... She controls this movie. She owns it for the first half. She is the character. You get so many scenes of her doing all of her hijinks to escape that police officer, the the man with the face like a slab of marble. Um, Yes. (laughs) um, Hitchcock hated cops. I would never have guessed. (laughs) He hate, yeah, in every one of his movies, he just, he hates them. He must have also been slightly terrified of them because... Yeah, I think he he plays into his own phobias a lot in his films. Yes, because this captures phobia of being followed by a police officer so well. So well, it's terrifying. You know, I one of the things I I thought about this movie, I was like, you know, if I got followed by a cop for that long in that way, what do you do? You call the cops? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> just I like when she was trading her car in, which I mean, obviously she couldn't do anything else more suspicious than she did the entire time she was being followed by that cop. But I'm just trying to think, like, how? What do you do? Like through a state, pretty much, he follows her. Like that's yeah, that's like. It's a high level. It's a very, very high yeah. level. There are some policemen in this movie, policemen and private investigator, who go above and beyond their gumshoe calling in order to follow people. Mm-hmm. How many <laughs> hotels and motels must Arbogast have gone through in order to find the Bates Motel? Because he starts in yeah, a city. Yeah, it's so off the road. We know that she's driven night and day for a while. How many <laughs> must he have passed and gone to? <laughs> Yeah, and this one cop is like, I'm going to follow this one woman who might be acting suspiciously for a hundred miles. Yeah, she she was acting like really surprised and creeped out when I woke her up in her car in the middle of the day. <laughs> yes. No one acts awkward after that. <laughs> Definitely. That's I mean, at not all. a situation you act weird in. Definitely not. Definitely not. Uh, do we have any uh, any other thoughts on uh, our cast here? I kind of enjoyed the uh, the sheriff. Just reminded me of that same kind of guy, mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering if that was like the start of all sheriffs and or authority <laughs> figures have to be somewhat like this guy. Yeah, did he start that trend? <laughs> right, right. Uh, I think the psychologist is just the most ridiculous thing. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. He's too. so insane. Um, so was he insane? Yes. And no. And I'm like, oh, my God, shut up. So annoying. <laughs> we have entered Shakespeare in the park all of a sudden. But I'm not <laughs> yes. sure if it's the actor so being theater. bad or that the actual character is just a psychologist who really enjoys his job too much. yes he's like i have been waiting for one of these guys for so long (laughs) (laughs) but yeah he uh r lee emery is the guy i was trying to think of he was the drill sergeant in uh, full metal jacket and i just felt like the 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 sheriff in the end just really really reminded me of him and i'm just wondering if that was where like that small town sheriff uh vibe came from yeah All right, so uh, on our film creation here, um, how are we feeling about Alfred Hitchcock? Jane? (laughs) So he wasn't, like, the nicest person ever. Um, 
obviously we I guess we come to expect that from male auteurs um Kubrick that kind of state thing he obviously like really tortured one of his female uh stars Tippi Hedren in particular on the birds um but he uh obviously is was, was a genius kind of undeniably um it, this was pretty, the production was a little irregularly dramatic because of the content, because this was so groundbreaking. And so people called it like smut. People thought it was disgusting um, with the murder, with the guy dressed up as a woman, which I'm like, that's the least of this. These are the least of the problems. That's not even a problem. <laughs> um, so uh, the production, um, Hitchcock had a contract with Paramount that he would produce all his movies with them, but they read the script for Psycho and they said it was disgusting and that it would tarnish the Paramount name. So they refused to produce it. So Hitchcock had to basically pay for it out of pocket and go to Universal and have them produce it for him. Um, so he was really, really passionate about this film being made. Nothing like going across the street on a company. Yeah, uh, right. Nathan, how did you feel about him? Yeah, what's it got to be like when you go from a color film back to black and white and you're on the cusp mm. on the cusp of things cuz previously he he had been working on North by Northwest, but I what can what can't you say about the directing in this movie? There are there, there are just too many scenes to to pull out to note that this is one of these movies with a simple plot that it's all in the texture, that there are these scenes that have no text there's there's no actual script at all it's just someone packing up her wardrobe to go on a trip mm-hmm. and she keeps on looking over at this envelope on the bed with a lot of money in it and the music is just keeping you on edge the whole time have you guys ever played the game is it churchill or hitchcock no what is that please describe so basically like you'd randomly send a picture to a friend of yours and you know the question's always is it church Churchill or Hitchcock because they, they look alike, they look yeah, very similar to one another, yeah. That's fun. So, um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, Hitchcock was like really, really like a control freak, major control freak, really heavily involved in writing, costuming, uh, everything that really a director wasn't known for being super involved in yet. Um, but one of my favorite facts about him and Psycho is the lengths he went to to preserve his uh, integrity of the midpoint and the final twists. Um, he sent his assistants out to all the largest bookstores in the country to buy out all the copies of Psycho, the novel. Um, he also had cutouts of himself telling the audience not to spoil the movie and to not come into the film late because it was very common back then for people to just come into the movie at any time, even if it had, you know, was almost over. Um, but he was like, you know, you have to watch it from the beginning or you're not getting in. And some movie theaters wouldn't even like show the movie because of that. They thought it would hurt their, um, their sales. Uh, and he also um, did something really different for this movie with critics. Usually critics back in the day would get early viewings and so they could write critiques about it. But he said that, no, they have to see it with everyone else. And so then they gave him bad reviews when it came out because they were mad. The plot thickens. Brian, if someone walked into your bookstore and said, hey, I want all these copies, what would you do? Um, well, I'm a, I'm a capitalist at heart. So generally I would say, here you go. And uh, how quickly would they reappear yeah. on the shelves? Well, I mean, probably fairly quickly. We're, we're really, really, uh, sensitive to pop culture trends mm-hmm. these days. Like I spend a lot of my time just shortlisting in stuff that's 
new Netflix series or yada yada, which is funny because I am so thoroughly against movie and TV covers for books and mm-hmm. the little dot you find sometimes Agreed. is now a show on Netflix. Like it is a besmirchment and uh, I, yeah, I can't stand it, but sometimes that's all you can get and you got to give the people what they want. Um, I will say this, that the only thing that kind of uh, did give me a, a little uh, red light here is we have gotten to the point now where we do deny over the phone mail orders for multiple copies of books because of resell uh, resellers. So for instance, uh, manga has become a really, really popular thing in North America. And we will have people who find out that we have, you know, a copy of something and they'll call and they'll say, Hey, can you send me a copy of this? We say yes. And they're like, so how many do you have? And they will do that to then resell them on sites like eBay for two and three times the price. So we will not do that. Just listeners out there, don't be harassing your local Barnes & Noble for resale stuff. Well, it sounds like someone had a very interesting traveling summer internship to buy a bunch of books. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I want you to go around everywhere. I'm sure back then people would be like, uh, all right. Yeah, sure. I mean, okay. And also Hitchcock was the type of guy who would like literally have a bottle of wine flown in from France to a movie set. Like he was just that type of guy. That tracks. I, uh, yeah, uh, no, totally. I get it. I mean, never would I ever, but still. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um... All right, so uh, he also directed this movie. Do we have any uh, uh, special feelings on uh, the way this movie was put together and directed? Um, So he was really, really um, stood firm on his beliefs of what the movie should be, even though a lot of people were like, no, you can't do that. You can't show a toilet on screen. That's not okay. It's never been done before. It's gross. It's never going to happen. And he was like, no, we're going to, I mean, we're going to do it. So like, I don't know what you're, what you're complaining about. Um. But uh, I really found it interesting. He broke a lot of levels, a lot of boundaries with this um, movie. Obviously, the nudity and the knife penetration that had never been seen before. Oh, no. Um, And uh, it it couldn't make it past the censors. So Hitchcock had already fought to keep the shot of the flushing toilet in. But he wanted the scene the way he wanted it. And so he um, had Janet Lee. He wanted her to do it nude. But she was like, no, I'm not doing that. So she dressed in a full body uh, skin suit and then had a mo- they had a model doing the other nude scenes. Um, if you pause it at certain points, you can see a nipple and knife penetration. And I guess when Hitchcock sent that to the censors, they were like, they couldn't agree whether there was um, nudity or not. And uh, so they sent it back to him and was like, you need to co- fa- fix the nudity. And he took it out and was like, okay. And he didn't do anything to it and sent it back and it got approved. So, yeah, he just, he was like, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And he just sent it back and they were like, oh, yeah, that he took it out. But he didn't do anything to it. Well played, salesman. Yes. So, obviously, Hitchcock has a plethora of work. Um, where do you put this in ranking his work? Is this the best? Is it, you know, mid-tier? Where, where are we putting Psycho? Um, I would think, I mean, it's obviously probably his, it is his most well-known. It's his most famous. Um... I love it, but I think I would say that I have other favorites um, that I think are a little creepier um, in a lot of ways. Like, I really like um, Strangers on a Train. That's probably my favorite Hitchcock movie. Um, It's about these guys who meet on a train, and this guy talks about how annoying his wife is, and then the guy tries to murder her. Um, It's really, really scary. And, uh, yeah, but I think, obviously, this is easily in his top five out of his 50. 
How do you feel about it, Nathan? I agree. This has got to rank pretty high. It doesn't have the architectural wonderfulness of his previous film, North by Northwest, but uh, mm-hmm. it's, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Now, this is an incredibly atmospheric movie. Uh, everything about it is, you know, about um, expressing that suspense. So let's talk a little bit. Uh, we'll go into set design and that sort of thing. But um, locationally, like, how does this movie make you feel? Nathan? On edge. I think that's my main takeaway from this movie, is that the entire movie is spent just feeling like your teeth are have to be clamped against one another to, to deal with the either the psychological just pain and desperation that it starts out with, to the scenes when various people are flirting with Marion against her will, and then later on just feeling like she's at risk of falling asleep at the wheel and getting into an accident during various things. Uh, it's, it's amazing how well, between both the directing, the sound design, and the score, because, you know, I can laud the score and, and call out how great it is, but Honestly, the sound design also has to be brought up here, too, because there is so much good work there that works all to keep you just on edge so that when those shock moments come, you're ready for them, and it feels great. Yeah, and I mean, Hitchcock worked worked so hard on the sound design. He, uh, he, like, tried out, I think, 50-plus fruits and vegetables, stabbing them to see which would make the most satisfying sound for the shower scene, and he landed on a cassava melon. That sounds like a fun day. Yeah, yeah, he just stabbed a bunch of fruit. It was like Fruit Ninja uh, in the 50s, or in the 60s. (laughs) So he was his own Foley artist. I I really hope that that was, in some way, shape, or form, the inspiration behind Fruit Ninja. Yeah, I I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> does that mean brian well, that you well, think hitchcock. there's a video out there of alfred hitchcock fruit ninjaing things in the air maybe <laughs> i mean i i don't know if there i i've i think i've mentioned this before on the podcast but if i could have one job in hollywood i mean like just for fun i would love to be a sound effects person mm-hmm. like that just seems like a blast like that I would just like, oh, honey, what did you do? Or what did you do today? I stabbed 150 different fruits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, sweet. Like, <laughs> or, or be that guy is like driving by a train tracks or something. The train is like hitting a cardboard pallet or something that's sitting along the side and it's making something that sounds like great gunfire and you have to pull over really quick and grab your phone and run up to it and hit record and hope you get enough of it to splice it together and be like, <laughs> dude, I've got the next machine gun, the next <laughs> great machine gun sound. Like, this is going to be awesome. Have you ever... <laughs> so, anyway. Have you ever had the urge to actually go and record something that you had that, that you were encountering in, in, in real life almost... Yes, it wasn't really. I didn't wasn't thinking about a sound effect though. It just seemed like a once like it. It was this eerie noise. Um, I was in downtown Spokane. They were doing a street cleaning at uh, around the holidays, and I guess a ball from the tree 
had gotten in the street and it was stuck in one of the brushes and it was making this like, and it was the creepiest noise I've ever heard. And I was like, should I record it or are people just going to look at me funny? (laughs) But anyway, I was like really getting into it. My wife's like, you're an insane person. And yeah, so... (laughs) Uh, Hitchcock was also really super attentive to, uh, costumes. He would take his leading ladies out and, and like pick out, handpick all of their costumes himself. And, you know, they would try them on and everything. Um, and I really liked, uh, how they played with the black and white in this film, especially with the costumes. Um, for instance, you'll notice that in the very first scene in the hotel, Marion's wearing a white underwear, but in, in the scene after, she's also wearing a white outfit before she s- decides to steal the money. But then after, we exclusively see her in black underwear and gray and black tones. So that kind of signifies her moral change, right? Um, which I think was really interesting. I wrote a whole paper in college about the colors in this movie and how he used the black and white. So how about the lighting? They do a lot of interesting things. It's not like full-on like noir where they're just doing eyes, but I do feel like they, they light faces in, in very specific ways. How are we, especially with you know how iconic the house is with just the lights on, and it's that, that almost static um, uh, dark shape, but the, the windows really make it a thing. Um, yeah, like it, it, the the light up sign for the bait to hotel. I feel like they do a lot of interesting things in this movie with lights. Uh, how are we feeling about that, Jane? Yeah, um, I specifically the shadows in the scene where they're eating dinner are just spectacular. Like the shadows of the birds, Norman shadow, um, like kind of going over Marion, kind of dominating her a little bit. It's really really cool. All the stuff that he does with shadows, and you kind of have to do that with a black and white film. Um, and also the lighting um, for the car scene is great. It really kind of evokes that anxiety of driving at night really, really well. Yeah, I don't know how she could see it all in that car. Yeah. I was like, uh, yeah, that's pretty dangerous. There's like not a road and and just, you know, random blobs of light heading at you. Yeah. You should probably pull over at that point. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And All who right. can and who can forget the use of just those creepy lights for that the Bates house. Oh yeah. The the windows yeah. Oh, yeah. ominously staring at you all the time. Yeah, they're like eyes. I do feel like there was some use of that uh or reuse of that same mechanism in um I'm going to blank on the name of it. I just had it 2 seconds ago, but it's a Stephen King novel uh, about vampires. Salem's uh, Lot. Salem's Lot. Yeah, Salem's Lot. So I do feel like there was some reuse of that that technique mm-hmm. uh, later on. Also, the scene where he's looking through the peephole is so freaky. That's oh, yeah. that's a great yeah. use of light where it's like just shining on his pupil. Ooh, so freaky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this has got a, a fairly uh, iconic uh, score. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, how the music sets the mood or assists the mood of everything is creepy. So just to start, we've had the conversation on this podcast before that we think that the film overture is a lost art that needs to come back. And this movie is just one of so many that makes the argument that it's got to come back because this starts off in a way to immediately set you off. And it almost feels a little shocking when all of a sudden it transitions out of it and you end up in the bright light of day and the score does ease off a little bit. But it still just leaves you with this 
teeth-chattering feeling, even when you end up in a fairly romantic scene immediately afterwards. And, of course, lighting-wise, it, it then continues selling that mood until Marion makes her decision. But, again, this score is great. Yeah, and one of Hitchcock's um, whole deals was he really wanted to make the, the overture, the intro scene, a part of the film. So that entire thing with the lines, you know, and it's uh, everything's fast and everything's choppy, kind of like how we see later in the uh, shower scene that had never been done before, that choppy shot after shot. Um, so that really, I think that overture scene, they kind of play that same foreboding music and it's hinting at the screaming violins later on and then it's kind of satisfying and terrifying whenever you see the culmination of that in the shower scene. Yeah, and there are some scenes that do indeed have the music back off a little bit. And mm -hmm. I think that the balance of those two things, this, isn't, this is not to say that you need to have music all the time in your movies. I think that having the music be successful in some of these areas really allows you to have some of these scenes when you're walking uncomfortably through a house and it's all dead silence and house noises. And then it's... <laughs> And then you're, it just primes you to be ready for those extreme, extreme shock moments. It's great. It's yes. really great. I Excellent. really got to hand it to, Excellent. once again, Bernard Herrmann, the composer for this film. Excellent job. All right, guys. So uh, are we ready to hand out some superlatives for Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho? I think we are, Brian. Yes. Excellent. My favorite part. I hope it's yours, too. All right. So who is your MVP, Jane? I'd probably say Hitchcock. Uh, he was, you know, super controlling, and that made this movie what it was, as with all of his movies, because he just would not let up. Nathan? You see, you see, I'm not a hoarder of my superlatives. I've given him <laughs> lots of praise tonight. Bernard Herrmann, once again. <laughs> I actually went with Anthony Perkins on this one. Um, I don't think I've ever seen someone do a better job of being like the jovial guy next door slash murderer. Yeah. That transition is fairly startling in this, and I think that this is probably one of the better movies that thins off uh, guesswork on what the twist is going to be. Like, it's old enough now that, yeah, you've probably had it ruined for you at some point in time, but, man, it I would not have called it, you know, the way it was mm -hmm. if if I hadn't known something was up. All right, what's, uh, what's your best supporting actor, uh, Nathan? Detective Milton Arbogast. He is <laughs> he, he's a great name, and this is another one where the connection also helps it for me. In addition to his hilariously hapless navigation of figuring all this out with his gumshoe nature and his dogged pursuit of everything, he, he does a really great job, has, has an amazing death scene, um, but also, just the name of this character, I gotta say, as <laughs> someone who wants to find an excuse to put The Expanse show and books into every single episode that he's on, there's a ship called The Arbogast, and I really hope that this is the source of that name. <laughs> Excellent. I, I, too, am a, a great fan of both books and, and show. Um, I'm going to go with uh, John McIntyre with mine just because I really did enjoy the sheriff in this. And it was a small part, but his kind of execution and, and, and really bringing the plot twist to fruition was uh, it was a lot of fun. I, re I really liked him. And I figured no one had picked him, so I went, I went for, the, <laughs> for the windows on this one. Uh, Jane, what's yours? 
Um, I don't, I don't think best, most enjoyable, I would find the psychologist, uh, just grade A community theater acting. <laughs> Cannot get enough. Simon Oakland. <laughs> Once again, I ask, but is it the actor or the character who is a terrible exactly, over the top exactly. actor? Can you tell? <laughs> Were they trying to do like the classic 1960s, uh, example of the psychologist, like the, oh yes, yes or no, that's both. Ladies and gentlemen, I've discovered the answer. Yes. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> I see a work one in there. Um, what is, uh, so we got some hidden gems. What's your hidden gem, Nathan? My hidden gem, and it's not really all that hidden, it's in the full view a lot of the time, is just how awful that motel is. <laughs> you see the house, and it's what is now perceived today as the most amazing horror house. It, I mean, this is really the, the fundamental, it's, it's got everything. But the motel itself, when you finally get a wider shot of it, you really wonder, so did Hitchcock just find this on the side of the road, unoccupied and vacant, and it's just like a no, shed? I believe they built it. It is, it is so disturbing feeling. The fact that it is able to be used so effectively, though, despite how just awful it looks as a set and as a, as a, as a, <laughs> as a place, it ends up with so much... I think so the lighting. Much, yeah, it ends up with so much character by the end where you see oh this is how the rooms are connected this is the architectural way that these things work norman has put her in room one because he wants her next to him so he can use the creepy peepholes and by the end of it you really get a sense that not just the house but the motel itself has a great character to it so that is my hidden gem Mm -hmm. excellent excellent uh jane uh, my head and gem would probably be at the beginning. Uh, the woman who plays Marion's co-worker is actually Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, Patricia Hitchcock. Um, I love her little scene where she does, oh, he was flirting with you. He must have noticed my wedding ring. And I'm like, okay, a little presumptuous, aren't we? <laughs> um, I just think that's so funny. That it could added. also be that she's way hotter than you. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, I think that she's just like a bombshell and you look like your dad. No offense, but like. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely had that thought watching that scene. So he doesn't want to flirt with Winston Churchill, you're saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd party with Winston. <laughs> at, at those English pubs that go all night. <laughs> yeah, he could go hard. <laughs> um, uh, I, uh, I went with the uh, first toilet flush in cinematic history as my hidden gem on this. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, when I read that, I was like, that's perfect. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> um all right so we're gonna recast some people and sometimes in movies this is uh, blasphemy and others it's uh necessary so uh nathan who are you recasting for psycho you know this is one of those movies where it's mostly blasphemy so i'm gonna bring up a more comedic one so one of the only things that i'll rag on this movie for is that the voices of norman and his mother emerging from the house are so over the top and ridiculous sounding that shut up, shut up. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so funny. Nor- Norman definitely comes off worse in a lot of those areas, but you know what? You might as well take it all the way. So I'm going to bring up Carol Kane, who is Miracle Max's wife in The Princess Bride, because I just want to hear someone yelling Hubbardink, 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 Hubbardink. <laughs> out of that house because that's about as ridiculous as i thought that was 
<laughs> Excellent. Excellent. And uh, Jane, are you recasting anyone? Um, I don't know who I would recast him as, but I think Sam, the guy who plays Sam, her boyfriend, is just kind of a brick. Um, I don't think he really has much... Uh, house? A brick house. See a brick, brick house? house um he uh especially in the beginning scene he just doesn't really seem like he's that interested in um marion and even like hitch had to give the direction to uh vivian lee like you need to take this into your own hands because he's not gonna do anything let's get, come on we could we can meet again for lunch yeah <laughs> yeah oh all right well my recast on this is also kind of silly but it's also kind of in line with uh jane's I I do think John Gavin could be recast, uh, and I went silly with it. I'd like to see Elvis play that. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. So I'm 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 plugging Elvis in for John Gavin. I I think it would probably ruin the movie, but at the same time, I'm also think it would be my. I mean, humorous. maybe this is back before this is back before you could have, uh, or he probably wouldn't have done it as comedic relief, and this is back before comedic relief was necessarily a thing. But uh, I I just that that amused me that thought. <laughs> All right, so uh, what is your best shot, Jane? Best shot. Um, I would have to say um, I really or stab. I love Norman and Marion's conversation. Um, I think that that entire scene is just wonderful, but especially this the scene where she said maybe you could put her somewhere, and Norman like gets those big eyes, and like they have that kind of lower straight on shot of his face really really freaky excellent nathan yeah just to follow up on uh, on that jane the that's that moment in that scene is such a turning point like sure mm-hmm. the a boy's best friend and his mother is his mother line is famous and all that but that is such a great shot and a, and a turning point mm-hmm. my favorite shot in this movie is actually when detective arbogast gets got and he's walking up the stairs and all of a sudden yeah. the camera is doing this really wonky zoom out while panning backwards while doing all all sorts of things. And then mm-hmm. Norman's mother appears, stabs him, and he falls back down the steps and it just zooms back in and follows him on the way down. And it's so psychedelic almost. It's so yeah, mysterious yeah. feeling. And it gives this it, it gives this real sense of almost otherworldly mystery what is going on with the mother is she a ghost so that will be my Mm -hmm. best shot so for my best shot i went with uh there's a point in time after she's been stabbed and they've got this like slow pan out Mm -hmm. of her face laying on the tile floor i thought that was one of the scariest eeriest shots i've ever seen like period and I just, I couldn't get over that. Even at the end of the movie, I was like thinking about, even at the end of the movie. <laughs> Unbeknownst to you, Jane, that's actually our foul language buzzer. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great if I could just time that up, right? Uh, but even toward the end of the movie, that still like just hung with me. Yeah, and there's an interesting fact about that. Like the movie was done, it was in the can, it was finished. And then um, Hitch showed it to his wife, Alma, who was like a pretty consistent collaborator of his. um, And she was like, she blinked. And he was like, no, she didn't. We went over it like countless times and they went over it and she did. And so they had to (laughs) change. They they just like cut that out at the very last minute. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So we're on to best scene. So what is your best scene, Nathan? There are so many iconic scenes in this movie and I could call out any one of them 
as as this and i i think that would be great but i'm gonna try for something a little bit more unusual here uh something a little bit more out of the way and earlier in the movie i think the coolest scene for me is actually when marion is in her own room in the city and she's got the envelope on the bed and she's packing and the envelope is pulling the camera and her eyes to it like gravity and the score is chugging along just giving you the sense that she is so tempted and she ha- she's inevitably going to fall prey to the temptation of this envelope of so much money just sitting there open with the bills sticking out and it's amazing it's it, there there's no words there is nothing but the amazing direction of it. So that is my best scene. Excellent. Jane, how about you? I would still say the scene, the conversation scene between Marion and Norman, um, just because I think it really, and again, Hitchcock is so good at directing scenes that kind of feel real for women. Like that scene of feeling you're in a room with a weird guy that you're getting weird vibes from, but you don't want to be rude and you don't want to set him off. But then he kind of starts getting weirder and weirder. And uh, I think that scene really captures that really awkward place that she's in. Even the scene where she's like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. And then he's like, well, what would you know? And it's just very scary in a very human type way. No, you're right. That that was an excellent scene. Uh, I actually went with something that's probably not even on a top 10 list uh, for best scenes, but I liked it because it added a layer of deception to the film was Norman carrying air quotes his mother down the steps because at that point you're like oh there's no mother but then you're like oh there is a mother like what 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 you know what will this end up being so it it added a false positive on whether or not norman bates's mother actually existed and and i loved that mechanism Mm -hmm. yeah that's a great scene um do we have a best wardrobe or makeup moment the brows, Marion's brows are just the most, it's, they're just perfection. Um, brow goals, honestly. Just every time I look at her face, I'm like, wow, look at those eyebrows. Incredible. I am not a fan of that, the hairstyle, though. Yeah. Like, the sister um, was was in a much better place. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do. I did find myself, like, wondering if John, Gavin, and the sister got together in the end. Yeah, I mean, they kind of weirdly set you up for that. Like, well. I he's don't know. Clear. I think he's Hitchcock available now. did this pretty straight and narrow <laughs> here. He, I, I don't think he played that up at all, which I really respect because a lot of movies, that's the inevitable conclusion. You look yeah. like your sister. Sure. <laughs> you, well, I dated your sister. You look like her. Let's just, I mean, do the natural thing. I know we haven't met yet, but I feel like we have. So we should probably just get together. <laughs> uh, Nathan, do you have a change one thing? I do. Once again, I'm going to call out how silly I thought the voices coming from the house were. And I think that this is something that if you change it away from being a motel and to something where maybe the house and the spare room are actually one and the same. So if you change this movie to the point that she falls asleep on the road and wakes up by a house and a kind, considerate stranger walks out and sees this poor woman passed passed out in her car. He's so kind, he invites her in, and, oh, I have a spare room on the first floor that you can stay in. I think that there's a lot of things in this movie that get 
a little bit more effective. Uh, you can have a conversation with the mother a little bit more easily in which it can just be softly overheard words from directly the floor above just with thin walls or something and it can be a lot less ridiculous. I think you could even have some sort of interplay with using set sound, like they're just walking around upstairs, and maybe Norman does something weird where he steps twice to imitate as if the the mother was with him in the room. There could be so many things that maybe could lead clues if, instead of a motel, it was just a, one creepy house. I, I do think that you lose some, like, just my opinion on this. I, I hear what you're saying, and yes, there's that would fix some some issues, but I don't feel like, like, let's say it was a motel, but the office had living quarters yeah, attached to it. That's what I was thinking, because or, when you stay in a hotel, there's a presumption of safety, rather than staying in a stranger's Right. Home. And and I, I, I don't think you could have this movie without the house or the motel. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like both occupy a significant part in this. But yes, I completely agree with you. The fact that she could, quote, hear what they were saying from up the hill during the, the rain that he didn't hear her pull up in, like, that was, that was a little weak. Yeah. But but I feel like I can let that go because of the importance of both buildings. Yeah, I can totally see that argument. And I do agree that this movie, the idea of the Bates Motel is now so grounded in our cultural mm-hmm. upbringings and pop culture that right. taking it out would be to change a huge monolith of of movies. It It is definitely something that, that took away. It took me out of the movie thinking, how the hell does she hear this? You should watch The Lodger. It's one of um, Hitchcock's early silent films, and it kind of plays with that. It's a real precursor to Psycho, um, and it's a, a guy, a lodger, a guy who comes and lives in the house, and they think he might be a murderer. So that mm-hmm. kind of uh, plays with that theme, which is pretty cool. So you should watch that. Cool. I should check Excellent. that out. Excellent. What would you change, Jane? Um, I don't really buy that Norman would kill his mother. Um even if he was jealous, uh, I think that, I mean, he loved, he loved her to death. And even if, if you go by like what this is based on Ed Gein, I mean, he didn't kill his mother. His mother died from a brain aneurysm because she got so mad that their neighbor was having a girlfriend out of wedlock. Like she just got so mad about it that she died, uh, in classic Augusta Gein fashion. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I get it because you want him to be like a pre, like a murderer already. Like you don't want him to just fly into murder with Marion, um, and it makes it creepier that he killed his mom and kept her there. But I think that I don't it doesn't really isn't really conducive to what I think Norman is. Do you think that he was acting and he tricked the psychologist? Ooh, that's a good point. Um Ed Gein certainly was not. Um but uh I mean I think that it's definitely possible for Norman to be doing that. But also I mean the the last scene whenever he's Doing the voiceover in his head, I think that kind of speaks to the fact that maybe he is actually insane. He wouldn't even hurt a fly. Yeah, so freaky. Um, so, uh, best quote, Jane. Uh, we're all caught in our own personal tra- in our own private traps. That's my favorite. Always has been. Uh, it's a great, great quote, and I think it gets slept on. Excellent, excellent choice, Nathan. Oh, this is going to be a 
funny one where, <laughs> once again, I just love everything to do with Detective Arbogast. And he has an exchange with Norman that is just so funny because he's trying to pry into Norman's day to day and Norman's trying to get him away. And so when Detective Arbogast says, oh, you're doing the laundry in each room. I'll follow you around and inspect each room. And Norman just says, oh, come, come with me. You can help me change the beds. And Arbogast just says, oh, no, thank you. In this really <laughs> hilarious way, just great exchange, great exchange. Savage. I'm good. <laughs> I always like the quote, we're always quickest to doubt people who have a reputation for being honest. Ah, that's a good one. So, yeah, I went with that. All right. Well, uh, Jane, you want to give us a, a plug for your uh, podcast and uh, tell our listeners why we need to tune in? Yeah. Uh, so you can listen to the Flick Chicks wherever you get your podcasts. Um, if you liked me, but you thought I wasn't uh, confrontational enough or vocal enough, you should uh, go check out our podcast because my co-host Allison is very funny and very knowledgeable. And I think we have a great time and we hope you guys come and have a great time with us, too. I can definitely get with Excellent. that. I have listened through a bunch of episodes of the Flick Chicks podcast, and it is a <laughs> lot of fun. Um, as, uh, and, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the goal. <laughs> you guys definitely have done a lot of horror movies. so Oh, we love horror. It's our fave. <laughs> and now we maybe have some background as to why. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> Origin story, perhaps? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. So on a scale of zero... Because I know there's going to be a lot of those on this one. <laughs> to five stars, what are you rating Psycho, Nathan? Hey, this is this is a four and a half. There were a lot of moments in this movie where it was riveting. And not even because it was scary riveting. It was just intense. And the score was going. And I'm such a sucker for great, crazy, overarching soundtracks. And this is one of them. The direction is amazing. I, this is a fantastic movie. Excellent. Jane? Yeah, I give it a five out of five. I think it's just a masterpiece. Um, it influenced film in ways that um, I think you could write hundreds of papers on. <laughs> um, really, really interesting stuff and uh, made a huge impact in censorship laws and uh, censorship in movies, which um, obviously we are very thankful for now. Excellent. I also gave it five stars. I don't do this very often, but... What a film, guys. Uh, if you have not seen... If you're still listening and you haven't seen it, shame on you. If, uh, <laughs> But if you haven't seen it and you listened anyway, go back and watch it. This movie's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's truly one of the best. Um, so, uh, Nathan, you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I do indeed, Brian. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So, option number one, Dragon Lord, 1982, The Adventures of a Ruthless... Ooh, excuse me, the adventures of a restless martial art student called Dragon, who, while constantly pursuing a girl, gets involved in the affairs of a gang of thieves. Option two, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. A young Chinese warrior steals a sword from a famed swordsman, then escapes into the world of romantic adventure with a mysterious man in the frontier of a nation. Option three, Enter the Dragon, 1973, a secret agent comes to an opium lord's island fortress with other fighters for a martial arts tournament. What you got? I think we're going to have to do Enter the Dragon, option three from 1973. Going to be a good time. 
Excellent choice. Well, listen, Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really enjoyed it. And thank you to all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook, or even better, a comment on whichever podcast or casts you've listened to. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro, and email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support support the show on our Patreon page, and that's uh, patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is appreciated and will go toward making the show better for you, the listener. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Who showed you these? I learned it from watching you!